Hello and welcome to the Folklore Podcast. I'm Mark Norman, folklore researcher and author. From time to time during this year's season, I'd like to try and highlight for you other podcasts which carry content that you might find of interest if you listen to this show. Now, despite what some shows might lead you to believe, podcasting isn't a competition. I'd like to give you, as listeners, the chance to find other things that you might enjoy. I'm not endorsing any of the shows that I highlight, and they aren't paying to be featured. Think of it as a public service. As such, if you run a podcast that you think our listeners would find of interest, then do please email me at thefolklorepodcast at gmail.com and see if we can feature you. This episode I'm featuring Away With The Fairies podcast, hosted by Amelia Childress. Amelia covers a variety of folklore topics, not just fairies. The last episode that I listened to was a summary of mermaid lore, for example. Here she is with some more details. Clap your hands and shake off the morning dew. I'm Amelia, and we're going Away With The Fairies. Fairies in folklore are one of the most popular topics, but did you realize fairies are also prevalent in modern media? Those old tales influence everything from tweets to movies. If you aren't seeing fairies everywhere, you probably aren't looking, or you need a stone with a hole in it. Those do help. So join me at Away With The Fairies, a new podcast delving into all things fairy. Follow on Twitter at Podcast Fairies and subscribe now. If you like the sound of Away With The Fairies, then do give it a try. I'm sure Amelia would be delighted to welcome you to her audience. In this episode of the Folklore Podcast, we're starting a short mini-series examining the work of American storytellers. Storytelling is, of course, one of the cornerstones of folklore transmission, and a key way of preserving old folk tales. Modern technology allows the storyteller even greater scope to do this. Over the next few weeks, between shows on other topics, we'll be shining the spotlight on some storytellers from the US, hearing about their work, and naturally listening to some of their stories. These interviews will be presented by our theatre and film correspondent Tracy Nicholas, who's been instrumental in sourcing and arranging these interviews, and big thanks to Tracy for that. This week, we meet Cooper Brown. Cooper is a traditional storyteller, actor, and co-host of the popular live storytelling series Stories with Spirit. He was born in Boulder, Colorado, and, growing up without a television, found a love for storytelling from records and cassette tapes. Drawn to performance and theatre from a young age, Cooper started as an actor and has a BA in theatre. He competed in the Story Slam at the National Storytelling Festival in 2015 and 2016, and, in October 2017, he performed at the Exchange Place at the National Storytelling Festival. Whilst an accomplished slam teller, Cooper's first love is traditional tales. He was awarded the 2018 J.J. Reno Emerging Artist Award by the National Storytelling Network. Based in Colorado, Cooper and storyteller Rachel Ann Harding, who we'll be featuring on a future episode of the podcast, founded Stories with Spirit in 2014 to share their acting and storytelling with adult audiences, and they host recurring storytelling events with a twist. They bring traditional live storytelling into the new millennium with a variety of tellers that bring their unique interpretations and fresh perspectives to classic tales. 
From in-person tellings to online events, Stories with Spirit delivers traditional tales for a contemporary audience. It's also the home of fairy tale variations, in which multiple tellers perform very different versions of the same tale. From the fairy tale classic to the modern, audiences hear the story from every character's perspective in one single event. When the pandemic hit in 2020, they took their performances to Zoom, gaining a wider fan base from the US, Canada, Singapore, Australia and India, among others. Since the beginning of the pandemic, Cooper and Rachel Ann have produced over 20 virtual storytelling shows, and performed in many more. Cooper has become a leading voice in the production of online storytelling, and his stories remind adults that folk and fairy tales are there not just for children. Here's Tracy to introduce Cooper Brown. My name is Tracy Nicholas, and I'm here today with Cooper Brown, and Cooper is an award-winning traditional storyteller. He makes up half of Stories with Spirit along with Rachel Ann Harding, and together they're committed to bringing live traditional storytelling into the new millennium. Uh, So hi, Cooper, welcome. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, So definitely want to kick things off by having you tell us a little bit about yourself and you know how you came to storytelling and, and what's exciting about it for you. Great. So I was born in Boulder, Colorado, and uh, my bio often reads that I was raised by granola-eating coyotes, which is not too far off. I think the first time I had a television in my house, I was 10 years old. Um, I've never owned a television that got reception. As far as any of my friends when I was a child was concerned, I am culturally illiterate. I didn't watch cartoons growing up. Um, I I didn't read until the third grade, partly because I refused to read the kind of books that I could read because my father was reading me The Three Musketeers and I did not want to read Hop on Pop. So um, I had this a different sort of literary and cultural upbringing than most people. And part of that, though I did not have television, my father loved this thing called storytelling. And we can get into the sort of history of the storytelling revival in the United States, which started in the early middle 70s. And I grew up on storytelling records and cassettes as my child pacification. Uh, And it was... It was something that I grew up listening to. I grew up listening to people tell stories. Mm -hmm. My father also figured out that as long as he sort of talked, I would just be quiet. So it was an easy way to make me shut up on long drives or whatever else we were doing. So um, within that, I grew up on the art form. Now, uh, I sort of stepped away from it um, as I grew up, but I've been playing Dungeons and Dragons since I was seven, maybe. I have been reading fantasy and folklore and mythology pretty much all of my life. I had the incredible joy. Uh, One of my teachers in high school is the son of a man named Albert Lord, who uh, did the last major collection of modern epic poetry in the world Um, during World War I and World War II. In the Balkans, he collected uh, epic poetry. And so this is the man that taught me Beowulf and the Odyssey. Um, his son, Nate, um, my teacher, who could recite segments of the Odyssey just from memory. And so 
this is what I grew up doing. Um, I also, uh, I found the theater and I love theater, um, both on the technical side and the acting side. Um, I went to a little school in upstate New York called Union College, and there my my degrees were in theater and in history. I don't have a degree in history mostly because I didn't want to write a second thesis, but those are the two things I studied. And I have loved performance, and I've had this sort of background in mythology and fantasy and uh, folklore for a long time. And then uh, I work, um, my day job, I work for the University of Colorado Boulder, um, and at that time I was working for a large auditorium there called Mackey Auditorium, and every year at the uh, university we host something called the Conference on World Affairs, which is a week-long conference. They bring in journalists and artists and politicians, and it's free and open to the public. It's an amazing conference, but one of the most amazing things they do is they bring in storytellers, and an amazing uh, Irish storyteller named Liz Weir uh, kept bringing other storytellers in. And I was working the Conference on World Affairs, and I'm looking through the book, and I'm like, oh, right, there's storytelling here. I remember that. That's something I grew up on. And I started going to them, and eventually Liz and I got to talking, and she said, you know there's a group here in Boulder if you're interested in this. And she handed me the card um, of the Boulder Story Circle, which was where I met Rachel Ann Harding. We had met twice before the woman that ran the Boulder Story Circle decided that she was moving back to Austria with her husband and said, uh, the two of you are in charge now. And so having met Rachel Ann twice, uh, we were suddenly running a story circle together and we, through that, became close friends. We began performing together. And so I was reintroduced to this world of storytelling. And about a year after uh, being handed that story circle, I was offered my first professional storytelling gig and it just basically snowballed from there. Um, Stories with Spirit, which is Rachel Ann and I uh, together. And when we say that, we don't generally perform the same story together. We'll sort of go back and forth because filling an hour and a half by yourself is is a lot. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, the, the first gig that I did was at an amazing little distillery called Still Cellars. And after that gig, I went up to the two people that owned it and I said, are you interested in doing more of this? And they said, yes. And that next show I did with Rachel Ann, and that began our co-working together, and we've been working together and producing ever since, and that was in 2014. And so it's been a pretty wild ride since then. Um, can you tell us a little bit about Stories with Spirit and, and what it is, and also the fairy tale variations that go along with that? Absolutely. So Stories with Spirit is our company name. It's uh, what we perform under and what we produce under. Most of our production is shows where we ourselves are performing. Um, I've done a lot of theater production as a producer where I'm producing shows for other people, but I really like performing. And so having the skill set as a producer to come in as a performer is a really useful skill set to have. And so we have done, I mean, we... There was a time period there where we were doing 10 to 20 shows a year. Um, so we've done a fair amount. Um, we have produced everything from liars contests to scary story nights to shows that are just the two of us. We do a yearly show in and around the winter solstice because that's when our first show was and that's sort of our anniversary show every year. Yes. And we, we have a show at a spice shop every year here in Boulder um, called Tales of Salt and Spice, which is an amazing show. And... What really, in many ways, it's very strange to say, the thing that sort of took us to the next level was the pandemic. Um, that during the pandemic, we were all stuck at home 
and people were starting to try to figure out what virtual performance meant, whether it was music or storytelling or theater or poetry or whatever else. And I, um, my day job, I'm a theater technician. And so I have this skill set around figuring out how to produce things with the technology that you have at hand. And our first couple of shows were a little rocky and we found our stride producing shows virtually. Um, and we had produced maybe, maybe six shows virtually. Um, and then we had this idea. And this idea actually comes from a storytelling festival called Winter Tales, which used to be held in Oklahoma and is no longer. And at Winter Tales, they did a thing where all of the main stage, all of the invited performers, there were usually four or five, were asked to all tell the same fairy tale. And so they did A Night of Cinderella, and someone told it in verse. And um, people would play with the fairy tale, that everybody would do the same story. And over the years at conferences, um, I do what we might call traditional storytelling, fairy tales and folk tales. And people would talk about winter tales because it was this thing everybody remembered. And Rachel Ann and I got to talking that, well, we could do that. And one of the things that virtual performance did is it meant that we could have a friend in Minneapolis and a friend in Chicago and a friend in West Virginia, and we could all be on the same show at the same time. We didn't all have to fly to the same location. We didn't have to find hotels. We all could just sign in at the appropriate time on Zoom and do a show together. And so the first, uh, and we called this fairy tale variations, wherein what we did is that the first performer would tell the story pretty straight by the book, but reminding people that say in Cinderella, the stepsisters cut off their toes and their heels and at the end of the book are, at the end of the story are blinded by birds, right? The, sort of reminding people of what Disney has cut out of these stories. Right. So the first person would tell it pretty straight, and then four people would progressively play with the story in whatever they, way they wanted. That first one we did was Snow White. Um, there is, uh, my friend Janice Del Negro tells an amazing version from, from the perspective of a queen who is just so over a 16-year-old's tantrums. Um, <laughs> nice. But how these, these many different ways you can play with that story. Um, I tell a version of it that I've rewritten to be in Colorado during the Silver Rush. Um, it's a little bit one of my love letters to the state that I'm from. And so we... We did the show and it was a radical success. We'd been getting to that point, maybe 60 to 100 audience members per show. And suddenly we were hitting 150. Like we just, we took this step up that was amazing. And then we did another one and then we jumped to 250 audience. Um, our second one, Hansel and Gretel, held the record for our audience uh, participation for over a year. Um, so we started doing these shows and not only was it a really fun way for us, we, we hit a, we hit a nerve with a certain segment of the audience. And I'm happy to get into that and why I think that really worked, but it let us play with friends of ours that our, our storytelling friends sort of all over the country we could bring. And we now had a platform and to be really honest, it let us tell alongside some of the best tellers in America and now the world that we've done some of them, um, you know, one of the biggest things with virtual shows is finding a time is the time zone problem mm -hmm. that we do a show at 6 p.m. Mountain Time in Colorado, which means we have fans in Singapore who watch breakfast. But it does mean it's three o'clock in sweet three o'clock a.m. in Sweden. Right. right? So right. where do you set the show is a is a big question. But fairy tale variations has become about 
half to two thirds of the shows we now produce virtually and they continue to be really successful. Well, and I think one of the interesting things about it is, you know, when you're talking about traditional storytelling as opposed to personal experience storytelling, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I think that a lot of people think it means you're telling the story like the the way the original way or you mm-hmm. know if, if you can even find that right um but being able to play around with it and just using the story as you know a, an umbrella over mm-hmm. you know how you want to tell it um sort of opens that up at least for me it was surprising the first time that i attended and i i found it very much you know the way i'm sure everybody else does it was just you know some of my storytelling friends were talking about it so i was like well i'll go that sounds weird and different mm-hmm. and, and awesome and so so yeah it, it really it opened up my thinking as to what traditional storytelling really is right and i think the i think that traditional storytelling gets a bad rap for two reasons one of which is not actually a bad reason is that most traditional stories are told to children that that's the main audience for fairy tales and folk tales. Um, and we can get into, there's some argument about whether, like the Grimm's stories, the Grimm's book is called Children and Household Tales. That's the name of the, the collection that the Grimm's published. Um, these stories were at least intended to be heard by children if they were not directly intended for children. But the main audience now, whether it's Disney whether it's the, I remember a storyteller coming into like my third grade class, um, that the main audience for many of these traditional stories are children. And I'm just personally not generally interested in telling to children. Um, Rachel Ann is an, um, was a preschool teacher before she became a storyteller. She's amazing with children. There are other storytellers that love telling to children, but that's not who I'm generally interested in telling to. I like telling to adults. And I think that these stories have a lot to offer adults, but most adults have never had a traditional story that was curated for them. And that doesn't mean the story has to be rated R, though we've definitely done, um, last year around October, we did a Bluebeard show. So it was very dark. Uh, we have an upcoming show this October, um, where we're, which we're just calling Grimm's, which is the really dark stories from the Brothers Grimm's that are really sort of rated R. But that doesn't mean the stories have to be rated R, but that means the content is intended for an adult audience. That the word choice, the my intended audience is adults. And so most adults haven't experienced storytelling targeted at them, though the audience that I'm really interested in talking to actually knows that fairy tales are intended to adults because they read them. Um, Whether it's very famous authors like Neil Gaiman or Charles DeLint or Holly Black, these authors, some of whom are sort of teen fiction YA and some who are really targeting let's talk about let's talk to adults and let's use themes and concepts from fairy tale and traditional story storytelling for adults and those people just haven't heard stories told to them in that way and then the other side of it is what you i think were getting at there originally is that because traditional stories are copyright free they're a really easy way for people to start and that often when you at least a slightly older generation, now you have a lot of people who start with personal stories, that that's what they encounter and that's what they know and that's what they start telling. But the slightly older storytelling generation, 
they sort of said, pick a traditional story, whether it was Little Red Riding Hood or Cinderella. And often when people are starting, they sort of read the material and they think of it sort of like a play script that you are supposed to do what's on the page. And the short answer is that there are some collectors who really wrote to be read. Um, uh, Jacob's, the, the, the uh, sorry, Lang's The Colored Fairy Books are all in very beautiful prose where some of the older collectors, they maybe weren't writing down word for word what the person who was telling the story wrote, but they're pretty bare bones. And some of these stories actually, to me, have a lot of sort of glaring holes in them or questions that you're just sort of like, why is this happening? And so when you do it sort of the way, I do a lot of Brothers Grimm, so I reference them quite a lot, that if you do it sort of the way the Brothers Grimm's wrote it, there are, there's a lot of, hmm, really? What is, what? Um, and it's just, it's not elegant, shall we say. And so when people hear that, there's an immediate sort of, well, this isn't very interesting. Um, there might be some core concepts that stand out, something that's interesting, but the story itself might not be particularly interesting because the way in which it's written was not particularly interesting. When you're telling to adults as opposed mm -hmm. to children, what do you think that it offers the adults? You know, you talked a little about the themes and, mm -hmm. you know, because sometimes I think of a lot of fairy tales as being, you know, cautionary tales or you know morality tales mm -hmm. and and so what what's different when when you're telling strictly to adults um so i think for many of the same reasons people read fantasy as a genre that fairy tales specifically and we can get into the difference between fairy tales and folk tales um but fairy tales specifically and fantasy as a genre allow you to paint with bright brushes bright colors, broad brush strokes, in a way that, you know, to, to take probably the most well-known example from The Lord of the Rings, it is only in a fairy tale that you can destroy the earthly embodiment of all evil by throwing a ring into a volcano, right? And when I just say it like that, it sounds silly, but that's that story. That story is about the triumph of good over evil by destroying a piece of jewelry. But we all get that there's more to it than that, that the the bright colors and broad brushstrokes of fairy tales allow many things to stand for different things. There's an amazing storyteller named Elizabeth Ellis um, who uh, performed pretty regularly with a Native American storyteller. And they discovered that whenever Elizabeth went first, and she does funny Appalachian stories, whenever she went first in the evening, people loved it. But whenever her partner went first, they sort of checked out because the part, her partner would tell these really deep stories. And when the first thing out of a storyteller's mouth is, once upon a time, there was a man married, uh, sorry, a woman married to a bear. Everybody sort of is still trying to figure out where they're sitting and where their drink is. But if about halfway through the concert, we hear that line, people start nodding and going, well, that was my Aunt Phyllis. That we, we understand that bears can be more than bears and wolves can be more than wolves. And that we can talk about we can talk about things like true love we can tell these beautiful epic love stories in a way that love is never quite that clean in the real world right um we can that fairy tales heighten emotion mm -hmm. but they also give us a distancing mechanism mm -hmm. that the story doesn't have to be about something really dark it can be about a wolf mm -hmm. 
but it can be about something really dark if that's where that audience member needs it to go and the storyteller is opening that door. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And I think that um, you never know who, how it's going to hit each individual person. So you never know what story they're hearing through their own filter. And Mm -hmm. I think that's really, you know, an interesting part of it. Um, Now, do you feel like in, in sort of getting online and, and starting to do this with larger Mm -hmm. groups, um, how does that feel for you as opposed to doing it live with people in the room, with the energy, the building, that mm-hmm. kind of thing? So the first shows online were really, really hard. My first show, I maybe told for 15 or 20 minutes, and I felt like I had expended the energy of telling for an hour. Um, it was a much, it's a much different environment. Um, in a live show... Or and sorry, let me let me rephrase because I even fail. I just said in a live show, the online virtual story shows I produce are live. They are done in real time with audience watching us in real time. An in person show is also live. So um, I catch myself up doing this that people say live storytelling when when in which they mean in person storytelling. In in person storytelling, I can hear the audience breathe. I can hear them laugh. Um, I have a Uh, there's a two-way response going on. In the virtual environment, that's much harder to do. And for instance, we produce all of our shows in Zoom meeting as opposed to Zoom webinar, or there are some people that are uh, live casting their shows to YouTube. And one of the reasons we stick with Zoom meeting is that I can see all the little boxes. I can see people's faces. And while I can't hear them laugh, I can at least see someone smile. We've discovered that with virtual shows, humor is harder. That rolling laughter from a really funny story that is building in the audience is really hard to do. However, dry humor works really well because it's still that sort of (laughs) that people do, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, But the flip side is that in a in-person event, I'm probably at minimum 15 feet away from the first row of audience Mm -hmm. and potentially 100 feet away from the back row, depending on how big the venue is. Which means, on some level, it does mean I get my hands. It does mean I get my whole body to move with and work with. But if I crack half a smile, none of the audience is going to see that. If I sort of lift my eyebrows as I'm doing right now, the audience isn't going to see that unless I'm really digging into it. We're in this little Zoom box where we're both here. The uh, This would be our... um, I believe called a close medium shot in film. We're both uh, being seen from about the sternum upwards. Mm -hmm. This is how we view someone sitting across a table talking with them. And when I lift my eyebrows, you see me lift my eyebrows. When I wink, you see me wink. When I smile, you can see that. And it gives me all of this facial expression that I don't have in an in-person show. Mm -hmm. So it's different is the short answer. Um, It's taken us some time. And when I say us, I mean the storytelling community at large. I just um, produced a panel for the producers and organizers special interest group for the National Storytelling Network about two years in, what have we learned? And I brought in uh, other storytelling producers, people who have um, produced online events as long as I have been. And we talked about what have we learned? Um, And that's everything from the best practices around use of Zoom to how to set up a room so it doesn't, people aren't being like, that's your dirty laundry in the back. Um, So what have we learned two years in? And I absolutely think that 
what we have done in the virtual space is not going to go away. There are a lot of people that thought of it as a placeholder. We'll get back to in-person shows and then we won't ever have to do with, deal with the Zoom thing again. Mm-hmm. But the way that I look at it, right? So I work, um, I live just outside of Boulder, Colorado. I work, um, I perform in Boulder and Denver and sort of the outlying areas around them. And there, there are probably not 200 people in that greater area that want to come listen to me play with fairy tales unless I do a lot of outreach. But there are 200 people on earth that will. Mm-hmm. That we have found audience members, as I've said, in Singapore and Australia and Canada. We have, we had someone, um, the joy of the internet, right? Our events, we do all of our ticketing through Eventbrite and people just scroll through Eventbrite looking for something to do. Online events are a thing. We had a man log in from Brazil. Um, a man who has become a really good friend of mine over this lives in Mexico City. And we began talking after events because he, he's the kind of man that fairy tales might have actually saved his life. Um, I have a woman who lives in Maine, who lives in a retirement community, who we began chatting over Facebook after a show and has become a pretty good friend of mine. And it has opened up this world of audience in a way that I don't know if I would have ever reached doing in-person shows. And one of the things as Rachel Ann and I are really at this moment, we're trying to find a new venue because unfortunately still sellers closed during the pandemic and they were our venue for a really long time. Um, As we begin to think about doing in-person shows again, our plan is that for every in-person show we'll do, we'll do the same show virtually that weekend because we have a, we have an audience who's not able to drive to Boulder. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, it's a, I think that it's different Mm -hmm. that the experience of performing and as an audience member for a virtual show is different than being at a live show. And I definitely have, tried, um, and this is mostly through the use of Zoom meeting, to to have that moment where we open the doors of the show 10 minutes early, and I sit and talk with people who have come in. And we, we ask people, you know, if, you, if you're willing, turn on your camera so we can see your faces. Um, I, that same way that before an in-person show, I would chat with members of the audience. Once the show starts, we mute everybody. And then um, when someone's done uh, telling, we ask people to unmute so we can hear applause. Um, and then at the end of the show, we do about 30 minutes of Q&A. And generally speaking, then we spend about another 30 minutes just chatting. In that same way that at an in-person show, we chat with people in the parking lot. And we want to keep that feeling of this isn't this isn't a YouTube video. This isn't which again YouTube is its own art form. But right, I right. want I I like to curate the experience that this is a live event that you can have feedback in real time that we're chatting that we're talking and that does we've been zoom bombed twice now, which is sad. But this is why you employ technicians to run your tech and do your security. Um, but I it is so valuable to me to have that inter-audience interaction because I think people want it and people keep coming back. Yeah. I mean, I, I actually find that I prefer doing the, the zoom, you know, it's it, and it, it was interesting at first because when you go and you're, you know, somewhere where it's in person, you're, you're sitting down, you know, there are people around you, you know, you're, and when you're on the zoom, it's, 
easier to get distracted from, from my perspective. And so I really found myself saying, I'm not going to sit on my couch. I, I'm going to sit at the table. I'm going to, you know, have mm-hmm. my, my beverage here, have what I need. So I don't get distracted that way. Mm-hmm. Um, because, and, you know, maybe part of that is just getting used to binge watching stuff. And so you kind of, you know, you're, oh, I, I should really, you know, nah. pay this, pay this bill or, and, and so it, it, it does, it, I, I found that I needed to really make myself focus and then the mm-hmm. experience is much more enjoyable for me. I'm glad. So let's talk about how you develop your stories, the perspective that you tell from, um, and, and how, you, how you do that. Okay. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the story that's going to be included as part of this podcast, which I call The True Confessions of Prince Charming. And so this was the first fairy tale that I told first person. And this is the story of Cinderella from the prince's perspective. And I think it highlights a couple of the ways that I approach the material. So I said earlier that one of the things that happens during reading of traditional material is there are these moments that you're sort of like, what just happened? What do you mean she has sisters or whatever other sort of, you know, the end of the, so the frog prince, the story we think of as the frog prince is called Iron Henry, who is a character that shows up in the last paragraph, who turns out to have been a servant to the prince who got turned into a frog and has this very weird throwaway about how he literally locked his heart in iron bands to stop it from breaking. There's a whole other story here for a character that's introduced in the last paragraph. Mm -hmm. So there are these weird moments that stand out. And when I read a fairy tale and I approach a fairy tale, um, usually with the intent to do variant, I'm looking for these moments that I stop. That I think, so the best idea was to try the shoe on every young maiden in the kingdom. (laughs) So in the original Cinderella, the prince smears pitch on the steps of the castle to catch her shoe. This is an an intended activity. She doesn't just lose it. He is seeking out her shoe. Now, you have to think that there's going to be a lot of traffic on those steps, too. Um, A lot of people are, a lot of gowns are going to get messed up and you're going to get a lot of shoes, but we're going to discount that. But this sort of stuck in my brain about what is it with this try the shoe on every young maiden in the kingdom? And then it began this question to me about who is Prince Charming? That for the most part, fairy tale characters are generally two-dimensional at best. And a lot of the work that I try to do is how do you breathe life into these characters? And so I began examining through my own play about who is Prince Charming? And through that, beginning to find who is... And the other the other question that comes up in that is why doesn't he recognize her? Why doesn't he immediately recognize the young woman? Exactly. And so, to me, you have to answer those questions. And in answering those questions, I begin to build this story. I begin to build the story of a prince who does like dancing... But having 60 people all try to seduce him at the same time because they know that's how they're going to become queen, he is hiding in the garden from his own party. And so how do you begin to fit these things together? And to me, it's finding those sort of chinks in the story to say, 
what about this or that? What does that mean? Um, how do you find those places in a story that allow you to get inside the characters and figure out who they are and how they breathe? And the first person is a really interesting way to do it for me because in that case, I have to be able to write the story and then perform the story from the I perspective, which means I need more fleshing out of that character than I would in a third person story. And I tell plenty of stories third person. Okay. Um, but that getting inside a character's head, I found first person to be a really interesting way. And I think it really lets, lets me play with, maybe you've never thought about this story from this perspective, mm -hmm. but now let's, let's go in that direction. And I found that there, it's I'm I'm, it's a little bit becoming a trope of mine right now about these stories from the first person perspective of the male protagonist. I I've done True Confessions of Prince Charming. Um, I have a story of Hansel and Gretel, which is a very dark piece, but a really one of my actual, absolute favorites, um, which is from a very old Hansel telling the story of this this winter. Um, uh, there's a, a very lesser known story called Boots of Buffalo Leather, which I do first person. Um, and that gets into these. So one of the things that happens in these stories, right, is that you have weird bits of magic. So in Boots of Buffalo Leather, a king is lost in the woods and he bumps into an old soldier. Uh, the, sol the king is dressed as a huntsman. He's been riding. The soldier doesn't recognize him as the king. They wander for a while. They, they find a house where robbers live, because this is what happens in stories. And the old woman that cooks for the robbers hides them behind the stove. The robbers show up, and the soldier is so hungry that he just steps out and starts eating. And the captain of the robbers is impressed enough by this. And the soldier offers to give a toast. And everybody pours wine out, and he holds up his goblet. And suddenly, he's a magician. And he gives a toast, and all of the robbers freeze where they are. This is the only magic in the whole story. It's the punchline at the end of the story that the king gives the soldier a place in his household and says, my one request is that you never, uh, never toast me with any drink for the rest of your life. That, But it's this very weird moment that the soldier suddenly has magic, and it solves a problem. And when I was trying to work this story, because I like the story, I kept thinking, okay, does he poison the wine? Do I have to, do I have to give a lead in? To, do I have to give us some indication that he is in fact a wizard? Like, what do I do? And what I found is actually telling that first person, the king is as freaked out as the robbers are. Yeah. That magic happens. That it lets me get around, how is this soldier casting the spells? By the king feels his back go cold and this sort of current of electricity run through him and he is as confused as everybody else is and we can move on with the story. Interesting. Where there is a story that um, Rachel Ann tells, which I helped uh, workshop, uh, which is called Simple Hans, which is a story of a hunchbacked gardener and there's a long and crazy adventure. But throughout the story, it turns out he's magic and he ends up abandoned on a boat with a princess and he summons food out of his pockets. And at the end of the story, he decides to wish himself tall and straight and strong and handsome. And you sort of think, if he's able to do this, why hasn't he already done this? Why is he living the life of a poor hunchbacked gardener who everybody is cruel to when he's had the ability to do this from the beginning? And that was a story of working the magic out. 
Like, how do we solve this? It turns out he had a couple of apples in his pocket before they were abandoned. And that, that idea is seeded early in the story. At the end of the story, as he grows in self-confidence, he begins to stand up straighter and he begins to meet men's uh, eye contact. And how do we work in these same ideas, but how do we remove the magic? And so sometimes stripping away the magic makes it more human. And sometimes you let the magic be the magic and all of us are as confused as we are about the magic. But it's to me, it's finding... How do we humanize the story? Mm -hmm. How do we make them fit in a way that they can be fantastic, but the characters in the story need to respond to the fantastic nature of the story in the way that they would. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's a magical world where spells happen and witches and wizards are a thing that's there. And so they're not so shocking. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's terrifying. <laughs> and so how do you how do you how do you make the characters inhabit their own world is a lot of the work that I do and sometimes you do that by inhabiting the character and sometimes you do that by stripping out the magic or explaining that this is a world where magic happens. Uh-huh. Yeah, it sounds like uh, as you're developing the the story the character is developing as well so you can you know, it, it kind of drives mm-hmm. you to, is it going to be a world with magic? Is it not? Right. And, and you know, that then it, it I, I think that people are willing to suspend disbelief as long as what you offer them, it, they can say like, yeah, that makes sense. That's right. logical. And that's but, part of the fun, and, I think. Right. You, there are some times that, you know, we sort of refer to it as hand waving. There are There's a moment, uh, there's a story that I tell called Kathleen and the Greyhound, which is this really beautiful, episodic Irish love story um, where a man has been enchanted to be a greyhound. It's a it's a swap of the traditional King Arthur Dan Ragnell story where uh, King Arthur is asked to, to find out the answer to the question, what do women want? And uh, Sir Gawain is married to this hideous woman who turns out she's beautiful half the day and she says, you get to choose. You get to choose how which time of the day I'm beautiful and which time of the day I'm ugly. And it's a reversal of that, that a woman finds this beautiful dog who turns out to be a handsome prince half the day, and he says, you get to choose which, whether I'm a dog during the day or a dog at night. Many things happen, but when his skin is burned, he has to return to the land of the underworld. And this is one of those things that I just say that as the character, magic being what it is, I could not tell you then what I can tell you now exposition about the whole backstory of the queen of the underworld fell in love with him and he didn't want her and she cursed him. But we can sometimes get around that, that magic is just weird. And if we give the audience just enough to say, all right, magic's weird. Great. Moving on with the story. Mm -hmm. Um, you can, you can get away with those things that sometimes you sort of like magic is crazy. Um, (laughs) and then the audience, the audience is with you because magic's crazy in this world. Mm -hmm. Um, so, if you give the audience enough and the world is internally consistent, that again, if you have a character who's magic and uses magic the whole story, the audience is fine with that. But if we discover the simple gardener has been magic the whole story at the very end, we suddenly start saying, but couldn't his magic have fixed all of those problems we had up until this point? Right. So as long as you're internally consistent with whatever weirdness you're doing, the audience will generally follow you because mm-hmm. that's part of the fun of these stories. 
Right. Now, do you find that now that you're um, working more with an international audience and uh, are there differences between um, what an audience member from Europe as opposed to mm. the U.S.? I, 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 are those different experiences? Because when I think about the and, and we had you had touched mm -hmm. earlier, you know, the difference between folk tales and fairy tales. Um, I think that we in America tend to get a lot of fairy tales. We know those stories, um, but the folk tales are a little bit different. We don't have that rich history. I think the short answer is yes, but I'm not exactly sure how to like I haven't I don't have some very good answers. I think in general. I would actually say that American audiences know Disney. Mm -hmm. we, the, we actually have a real, Americans have a really solid grounding in Disney, which actually helps that they at least know the story of Cinderella because everybody's watched that movie. Right. Um, where European audiences generally seem to have a grounding in the storytelling traditions of the countries that they're from. That um, the the sort of popular upsurge of the moth and other similar personal narrative storytelling in the United States really is a United States phenomenon. Mm -hmm. The storytelling festivals that are held, um, I, I know the British Isles the most, mm -hmm. those storytelling festivals are all traditional storytellers. Mm -hmm. They're all doing traditional storytelling and the audience members that are attracted to those know traditional storytelling, where a lot of the audience members I'm getting for my events in the United States are people who are sort of saying, I'll give this fairy tale thing a try, where many of them know the moth, they know story slams, they know personal narrative, and what we're doing feels weird to them, where the storytelling audiences in Europe specifically are really cultured in more traditional stories. And so it's a little, they're like, oh, an American's doing this, that's cool. Um, I know there's a very rich and growing storytelling community. Um, uh, what is the, the acronym? FEAST, Federation of East Asian Storytellers, I think is that acronym. Um, that India and Southeast Asia, um, there's a huge storytelling uh, tradition. And again, it's much more traditionally rooted. Um, we can go into my reasons for it. I generally tell European fairy tales. Um, I have some, my, my heritage is German. My great grandmother terrified my mother telling her Grimm's fairy tales for bed. Um, I feel very comfortable telling European fairy tales. I tell some Japanese and Chinese fairy tales. I tell a very few Middle Eastern stories. Um, I do not tell African stories. I do not tell Native American stories. I, uh, have never ventured into sort of the Indian subcontinent in Southeast Asia. And so most of what I do is European centric. Mm -hmm. So the, the audience members of ours who are Asian are watching us tell stories from a different culture mm -hmm. and the audience members who are European, I think we're doing something with the European fairy tales that not a lot of European fairy storytellers do. Um, the what we might call fractured fairy tales, um, which of course comes from Rocky and Bullwinkle. Um, <laughs> um, fractured fairy tales or twisted fairy tales. This taking the bones of a story and really playing with it is not something a lot of European storytellers are doing right now. Mm -hmm. um, so it definitely is something of interest that um, 
or and on the other hand, one of the things I do is I tell I like finding stories that no one has heard before. That there are collections upon collections of old stories, and now and again you find something that you say, why doesn't everybody know this fairy tale? And so those are the kind of stories that I'm not going to fracture. For instance, this story, Kathleen and the Greyhound, I found, and it's stunning. It's a truly stunning story, and I don't want to mess with it because I want to bring it forward what, what I found as opposed to playing with a story that people don't have the reference points for. That if I'm telling the true confessions of Prince Charming, I can t I've told it to people that do not know the story of Cinderella, but it plays better if you know Cinderella. That the prince direct addresses says, and what about the shoe? That's what everybody asks about next. And because the audience is sitting there going, but what about the shoe? Uh -huh. Because you know this story. And so that's part of the fun of playing with these fairy tales is that you're playing off a knowledge base that in America, at least, I can generally assume everybody's seen the Disney movie. Right. And so I probably, you know, if I'm going back to the original Snow White where the queen is forced to wear iron shoes that have been heated to be red hot and dances herself to death at the end, that might be news to a lot of listeners. <laughs> but the fact that Snow White chokes on a poison apple is not. Right. And so you can, what do you reference? Mm-hmm. Well, and I think that's, you know, you, if, if your audience member feels like they're kind of in on it and they, they understand, then playing with it is a delight because right. you, you don't have to just, you know, passively listen. You're, you're thinking about the story that you already know and it's fun to have it suddenly be like, Oh yeah. What, what about the shoe? You know, like yeah. why, why didn't I, you know, think that was a, a really strange thing. And mm -hmm. so bringing up these, you know, questions around some of the stories that, that, you know, Disney kind of glossed over things and, you know, that's the way we learned it. So we just accepted it because you're a little kid. You, you know, you don't no. think about, you know, now why would the prince? <laughs> you know? you, you'd think you'd find someone that wore a size eight and a half long before you ran into the right woman. Or, um, you know, look at the person you're dancing with. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but yeah, I think that that's, um, you know, part of the, the fun. Uh, but it, it it's also, it's super exciting to hear a story you haven't heard before. Mm -hmm. do, do you think that you'd ever get the story out there the way, you know, so introduce it to people in a more traditional way and then mm -hmm. go back and play with it? Um, well, so that's sort of the core of what we do with fairy tale variations, except I'm not doing both versions. And that was, that's our point with fairy tale variations is that we want to start with a reference point. Mm -hmm. We want to remind the audience members that in, in the original Snow White, that is how the queen dies. So that when three stories later, my friend Janice Del Negro said, the, she says something like, and I hung my feet out the carriage window because they felt like they were on fire. That uh, everybody has the reference point. Right, right. Um, so I've never done that personally for a show, though I have a couple of ideas about how you maybe tell a story and then you tell it in a different way that begins to make you question the first story. Mm -hmm. It's not something I've done. Um, I have a much longer piece that I'm slowly in the process of beginning to work on. Um, now we're getting into myth, 
But the Hades and Persephone story has always struck me that the way in which you tell that story, there's the traditional version that we all hear, which is about abduction and a mother who refuses to give up on her daughter who literally goes to the ends of the earth to find her daughter. Mm -hmm. And there's another version of that story where Demeter, Persephone's mother, is so controlling of her daughter that when her daughter disappears, she is literally willing to let the entire human population of the world starve to death because her daughter is gone. And in that version, Persephone returns under her own control as a grain goddess, mm -hmm. that she is the one that returns to bring food to humanity. And how do we weave those stories together? And how do we say, and this is again, sort of what we do with fairy tale variations of, if we tell it this way, it means one thing. And if we tell it this way, it can mean an entirely different thing. Mm -hmm. um, that um, we're getting ready to work on a show. Um, we're doing a fairy tale variations where we're focusing on stepmothers. And I have had this version of Cinderella that finally congealed around really about a young woman who is in such grief for her mother that her stepmother and her cannot communicate. And there's a world where the stepmother realizes that the girl is at least talking to the cook, so she's going to make her work in the kitchen, because at least she's talking to the cook. And in this version, the stepmother is the fairy godmother. She is the one that lays the dress on Cinderella's mother's grave. Okay. And my friend Rachel Ann is working on a version, because in the original, Cinderella talks to birds. Birds come to her and do things for her. <laughs> yeah. And there is a house that is being terrorized by a crazy woman with magic birds. And that is a whole other version of Cinderella with very actually little changing from the original, right? Interesting. And so this is, this is part of what we play with. And one of the reasons that I think fairy tale variations has struck so many people that, you know, one of these sort of, uh, so I have this, I have sort of a running argument with a lot of people that run story slams. Mm -hmm. that you traditional stories can't work in a story slam, the sort of five minute personal narrative judged format. Uh -huh. And I'm like, well, I've gone to story slams and I've told traditional stories and I've won. Like I can do it. And they mm -hmm. say, well, what if three people did Cinderella? I'm, I will say, well, it will be three very different Cinderella's come to my shows and you will see that there are innumerable ways to tell the same story. And that one of the things that fairy tale variations, I think people like so much is hearing all of these different perspectives on the same core story that you sort of say five people are going to tell Cinderella. Well, we did two back-to-back -back Cinderella shows and 10 people told Cinderella and we did not have one repeat, including one of my favorite stories that I've ever heard by a friend of mine named Mike Spears, who tells Cinderella from the perspective of the mice who get turned into horses. And it is one of those stories that I wish I had thought of it first because it is one of the most incredible stories I've ever heard because Mike said, I've got a Cinderella from the mouse's perspective. And I said, oh, you need to tell me more. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I find that interesting about the story slams because the way that um, you tell at least some of your stories is from, you know, the, the first person protagonist. So <laughs> you're you, you are creating a personal experience story. You're just not doing it as Cooper Brown. You're doing it as the character. Right. And so it's, it's a strange, you know, and I think in the end, you know, everybody's allowed to produce their own shows the way they want to produce their shows. Sure. Um, what it really boils down to for me, 
you'll hear this, maybe not in these exact words, but you hear this, but that's not storytelling. And when Story Slam started, the traditional storytellers were all saying, but that's not storytelling. And all the slam people are saying, but that's not storytelling. They're not telling the truth. Um, now, I know that really good slam tellers, they're changing their details a little bit to fit. Um, yeah. And I don't judge that. I just, I find it so funny how bunkered we get that this is my art form and anything different doesn't count. Yeah. And this, this, I think, is the thing that virtual shows said that often if we're in you know new york city and chicago have thriving storytelling scenes because they're big enough to support them mm -hmm. denver is a medium-sized city but we are generally all jockeying for the same audience members mm -hmm. and so there's a little bit of trying to prove that you've got the right thing mm -hmm. where we suddenly went virtual and it's really just about finding the people that want to want what you do. And one of the things that I think that has made fairy tale variations so successful is that we do one thing. Um, I have very good friends that produce a, a program called Six Feet Apart uh, or Better Said Than Done, really brilliant uh, producers. But the one thing, and I've said this to both their faces, is that they are doing everything. They'll do a night of personal stories, they'll do a night of traditional stories, they'll mix it up, they do a lot of different things, which means they're marketing to a lot of different audiences. And fairy tale variations, we say we do one thing. Right. We do variants on traditional, generally speaking, up until this point, uh, European fairy tales. Mm -hmm. We do one thing. Up until now, it's pretty much all been Brothers Grimm's. We are stepping out of that next year. We're doing a Silky story, the uh, Irish and Scottish uh, women that uh, turn back and forth from seals to humans. Right. Um, so we're doing a Silky story. Um, but for the most part, we've done, generally speaking, Grimm's fairy tales. Mm -hmm. We do one thing. And if that's not what you want, we're probably not who you want to come watch. You might enjoy it once. We, we, we generally, I think, put on a really good show um, in the same way that I don't greatly appreciate reggae as a musical art form. I can go watch a really good reggae artist and say, that was good. They were good at what they did. Um, but we are doing one thing. And if what we're doing is what you want, people will keep coming back. And so we have tried that we've just, we said, this is our niche and we're going to do it as well as we can. Mm -hmm. And we are no longer fighting sort of for the amorphous storytelling audience in the greater Denver area. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's, it's fine that people aren't into it and they, they want to go see personal experience storytellers because right. those, you know, you can connect to those people telling their mm -hmm. own stories in a particular way. Yeah. Um, and you know, me, personally being from Chicago, where it is all personal experience, and I was interested in traditional, it was, you know, it was hard, because it, it sort of felt like everyone's like, oh, that's what, you know, and so it's, it's to open things up and to, to be able to, um, you know, find your people is, yeah. it's, it's great. Um, so, okay, well, is there anything else that I didn't think to ask that you'd like to share with us? Um, I think, I think we've covered pretty much all of it. Okay. Um, I think we're, I know that we're drawing, uh, close to our time here. 
Um, I think, you know, we could, I'm, this is a subject I love talking about, and I would be happy to continue talking about, but I think we've hit most of it here. Okay. Uh, Well, can you let people know how to find you, find stories with spirit, find when you're having events? Absolutely. So this is part of what makes how successful we've been, we've been a little amazing to me is that we actually have really poor internet presence. Um, We are mostly story. If you look up stories with spirit on Facebook, that is where we do most of our publicity. Also uh, Eventbrite stories with spirit is where we do all of our ticketing. Um, And so if you go to Eventbrite and you can search producers on Eventbrite um, and you follow us there, you'll get updates. Anytime we, we put up a show, all of our shows um, we didn't get into this. This is, um, one of the things that we've done is all of our shows, we call we call them pay what it's worth. Um, we allow people that tickets are free. Get a ticket, register, come to the show. Um, if you register for a ticket, you will get a copy of the recording once I post the recording. Um, the goal is to get people to the shows. And then we ask, if this was worth something to you, here are all of the ways that you can show that from PayPal to Zelle to checks. Um, and... It's meant that I've, the woman that I was talking about who lives in a um, retirement home in Maine lives on a really, really fixed income. And she's come to every one of our shows and we've become friends. And it's amazing because she feels empowered. I think she's once sent me a check, but that isn't the point. The point is that she's there and that she supports us. Right. And so it's been a really, it's been a really interesting model. Mm-hmm. Um, that's great because they're a lot of fun. They're very different, and um, it's it's really just a, a, a different way to experience it. So I, I hope that you don't ever stop. Thanks to Tracy and Cooper. In a moment, we'll get to enjoy one of Cooper's stories as he tells the true confessions of Prince Charming. If you're a supporter of the Folklore Podcast on Patreon at any tier, then I'll be posting the video version of this telling so that you can watch the full dynamics of the story unfold. If you don't currently support us, then you can do so for as little as a pound a month. It really helps us to keep going and you can access the whole back catalogue of exclusive content for the tier at which you join at any time that you sign up. We've also created a new second level tier which will give you access to our new Folklore Podcast Discord server where you can chat with me and other supporters about anything you like. In the next episode of the Folklore Podcast we'll be joining up with some of the creative team of the Irish horror folklore fiction podcast Petrified to learn more about the traditional Irish lore that inspires their work as they launch a new third season of episodes featuring new performers, including Welcome to Night Vale's Cecil Baldwin. In the meantime, here's Cooper Brown to tell the true confessions of Prince Charming. See you next time. Who names their son Charming? My parents. That's who named their son Charming. My younger brother's name is Frederick. My sister's name is Josephine. Even she gets a boy's name. But me, the eldest. Charming. Prince Charming. And oh, I was. I am. Someday it will be written there, King Charming the First. And last of that name ever. But you're not here to listen to me complain about my name, are you? You want to know about the ball. It's, it's all right. It's, 
It's all anyone asks about these days, I, I'm happy to tell you. And in fact, let me tell you how it really was. Oh, it was the third night. The third night of the masquerade ball my father had planned, to which all the eligible young maidens of the kingdom of appropriate status had been invited. Not, not that it said that on the invitations, but that's my mother for you. The, the subtext was all there. So there we were. Everyone dressed up in silk and satin and velvet with leather masks of wild beasts with gilt and gold, which, if you think about it, is a truly stupid way for me to choose who I'm going to spend the rest of my life with when I can't actually tell who anyone is. And there I was, Prince Charming, in a white silk suit, the only fool in the room who didn't get a mask, and a powdered wig that itches like they do, and new shoes, though they were tight and they pinched my toes. And there I was, in the middle of 60 young women who had all been told by their families that their path to being queen was seducing me. Now, <laughs> let me be frank, I, I love dancing. I adore parties, and, well, I genuinely like being seduced. But 60 people, all trying to do it at the same time is... It's ludicrous. I think, I think it will go somewhere to explain why I was planning on spending the night under a rosebush. I had, I had made my escape, and in the process acquired a bottle of champagne and a plate of those little cakes my father likes. Now I had made it as far as the gardens, which, oh, they're not really gardens. It's an, it's an indoor greenhouse, but it's so big you can get lost in it. And there, there's a path there. And if you follow that path, you can slip in behind the rose bushes, and you can look out at the whole garden, and no one can see you. When I was little, I would use it to spy on people. But now I mostly use it not to be spied on. And I had, I had just settled in. When I, I saw her, she was sitting on a bench and she was crying. Now, you all know that since this became public knowledge, there, there are men on the corners of streets selling picture books where there are paintings of the whole affair. And in those books you can read, it was love at first sight. Now, I was there. And I would like to set the record straight. It was not love at first sight. She was sitting and she was crying. And not the, I spilled wine on my dress and these unfortunate heels are making my feet tired, sort of <sighs> tantrums you get from noble girls at parties. But just sobs. Why did I get up? <sighs> Maybe I wanted to prove that I'm not just the spoiled fop that everyone seems to think I am. Maybe I just saw someone else who seemed so alone. I, I got up from behind the roses. I made my way over and I, I did the prince thing. Are you all right? Now she looked up, her eyes were wide, but she didn't recognize me. She blinked away her cheers. She brushed me aside. No, I'll go, it's okay. But I called after her. No, please, really, really. What's the matter? And it just came out. 
I don't know why I even wanted to be here. I, I can't dance. I don't know anyone. I haven't seen the prince. I don't know what got in my head that I wanted even to come. And I, I could hear the music from the ballroom. What do you mean you can't dance? Surely you must have learned. But she shook her head. Would you like me to teach you? I could, I could teach you right here. I think at first she thought I was mocking her. But when she realized I wasn't, she smiled. And it was a... It was a clever smile. I held up my hand. She rose. I bowed. She curtsied finally. I took her hand in my own. I slipped my arm around her waist. She... She stiffened, but there I, I gradually got her to relax. And beneath the moonlight on a path in the garden, to those thin strains of music coming in from the ballroom, I, I taught her to dance, or, well, I tried. She genuinely didn't know how to dance. She was terrible. But, oh, it, it was fun. It was fun in a way I'm not used to having fun at balls. I, I don't know when the last time I danced with someone who didn't, didn't know who I was. Who wasn't trying to get a favor or introduce me to their eligible grandniece or trying to get me to start a war on their behalf. That, that is another story. We danced, we walked, we talked. It wasn't, it wasn't just her smile that was clever. She was funny. She was witty. She was smart. We fetched the champagne and the cakes. I showed her how you can sit behind the rose bushes and look out at the whole garden. We ate and we drank and, oh, it was, it was just after 11. We were dancing again and she was stepping on my toes, uh, I think a little bit on purpose. And the rest of the party found us, and suddenly the whole ball got moved into the gardens. The servants had to bring in candelabras so there would be more than just moonlight. The orchestra set up around the fountain, and then ugh, everyone was dancing on the tulips. I was, I was back to being Prince Charming. In the middle of it all, everybody, your majesty, we missed you. Where have you been, your majesty? Your majesty, this, your majesty, that. And, oh, I, I watched her eyes. They got so big. She curtsied as low as I have seen someone curtsy, Your Majesty. Forgive me. For forgive me. I'll go. She turned to leave, but for the second time that night, I called after her. No, please, please don't go. I think I sounded scared. I, I was scared. I was back in the middle of everyone, the target everyone was shooting at. And then she did the bravest thing. She stepped between me and them, and she curtsied. Her Majesty, may I have this dance? And we danced. There in the middle of everyone. Terribly. And I could hear the gossip. It was as thick as honey. Who is she? She realizes that dress is last summer's fashion, isn't it? 
do you think he's lost a bet? This has to be some sort of pity dance, isn't it? Is this a joke? And on and on and on and on. But as long as we held one another, as long as we danced, they couldn't touch us like an eye in a storm. And, well, eventually they all went back to having the kind of party that half of them wouldn't remember the next day, and the other half, well, they sort of wish they hadn't, for it became obvious to all I wasn't dancing with anyone else. Though, I could see my mother watching me and this girl she did not recognize, but she didn't interfere. You, you know what happens next. The clock chimed midnight, and she froze in my arms. What if they've already left? What if they're already home? And she literally ran out of my arms, through the marigolds, out of the garden, out of the castle, out of my life. And I hadn't even been able to convince her to tell me her name. Now, I tried to run after, but everyone just needed to ask me, Your Majesty, what's her name? Your Majesty, who is she? Where is she from? I pushed my way through and I ran after them. But by the time I reached the castle steps, she was long gone. And the shoe. One of the guards had to point it out to me. It was there on the castle steps. It was... It was a shoe. It was a plain woman's dancing shoe. My, my little sister might have worn it. I had a shoe. But what I also have are servants, and some of them do actually like me. Gustav had seen her run, and while he had not caught her, let's just say we had a pretty good idea where to begin the try the shoe on every young maiden in the kingdom tour. Well, I think it's as, as good an excuse as any for what happened next. I barely slept. And the next morning we arrived at her father's house at a truly ungodly hour. Now, he's a wealthy merchant and his second wife is a widowed baroness. And they smiled through their hangovers and were so happy to invite me in and introduce me to their two daughters, who were both obviously the young woman with whom I'd spent the night. Now... The younger, she was too short, but the elder, she was of an approximate height, her eyes similar, and, well, I get asked this question a lot. Why didn't I not immediately know it wasn't her? Well, it had been dark. She had been wearing a wig and a mask and... I had had a bottle of champagne by myself before we'd even met. I, I, I let the elder girl try on the shoe, and she did manage to fit it on her foot, and she smiled at me like she had won a kingdom. But that smile, it was all wrong. I asked if there were any other young women in the house who might have been at the ball, and they assured me they didn't even have any servants of the right age. Bring me every single person who lives in this house, and my guards will help. Sometimes you have to be royal. 
they were lined up from the butler to the scullery maid. And I walked down that line and they bowed and they curtsied and they begged my forgiveness for being in my presence. And then I saw her. I think it would be better if the books wrote love at second sight. A young woman in a dress stained with ashes who didn't curtsy, who didn't look away, who just smiled and for produced from the pocket of her apron a shoe that matched the one in my hand and her sisters exploded. Cinderella, I thought that was my dress. You minx, you stole her dress. Is that mother's wig? And on and on and on. But again, it was just the two of us there in the noise and the chaos. Cinderella? I... I hate that name. Please, forgive me for laughing. It is just, it is just that I hate my name as well. Prince Charming, at your service. Is it, is it Ella? Eleanor, after my mother. Eleanor, Eleanor, Eleanor. It would be my honor to call you Eleanor. And if, if you would do me the honor, it would be my joy to call you my wife. You all know she said yes. My mother did offer, though Eleanor did refuse to have her family punished. Well, since the wedding, I have been teaching her how to dance and she has been teaching me to be kinder to my servants. My mother is teaching her how to run a country, and I think for that matter, a king. But, well, the, the books did get the ending right. We are living happily. As forever after, we'll have to wait and see.